coming up on The Jordan Harbinger Show. We've been lied to. The public has been lied to. And they've created false narratives constantly and false criteria. And on that basis, we've gone to war. This is what's crazy. Who's to blame? If our media was honest and asked these questions, we wouldn't have been in these wars. And a lot of people would be alive today. We'd be a far healthier country. We'd be dealing with a climate crisis, which is really fucking important. Instead of dividing ourselves, being distracted, not paying any attention to the biggest problem of all. And it could all be dealt with rationally, but they never do this. It's just impossible to be logical here. Welcome to the show. I'm Jordan Harbinger. On The Jordan Harbinger Show, we decode the stories, secrets, and skills of the world's most fascinating people. If you're new to the show, we have in-depth conversations with people at the top of their game. Entrepreneurs and astronauts, spies and psychologists, and even the occasional legendary Hollywood director. Each episode turns our guest's wisdom into practical advice that you can use to build a deeper understanding of how the world works and become a better critical thinker. Today, legendary director Oliver Stone is with us. Oliver has directed Midnight Express, Platoon, JFK, Snowden, Scarface, and Natural Born Killers, Need I Go On? On this episode, we get inside the brain of one of Hollywood's most iconic and controversial directors. We'll also discover some of Oliver's political beliefs, which may even overshadow his film career, and we'll also explore the creative process and some of the side effects of a life lived in Hollywood. Spoiler alert, it involves lots of cocaine. (laughs) If you're wondering how I managed to book all these great authors, thinkers, and celebrities every single week, it's because of my network, and I'm teaching you how to build your network for free over at jordanharbinger.com slash course. And by the way, most of the guests on the show, they subscribe to the course and the newsletter. Come join us. You'll be in smart company. Now, here's Oliver Stone. You were a cab driver, and I'm wondering if you learned anything about people doing that job that maybe ended up in your movies. Because I know 18 months after that, you win an Oscar for Midnight Express. So it didn't really develop in a vacuum. And cabbies see some weird stuff. I would say overall, My impression is that people are good. People are honest. People care. I don't get the Joker's viewpoint of humanity, you know. I get a feeling that people behave. Sure, a few people stiff me for fares. They'd take me out to some suburb like Queens or somewhere, and and they'd stiff you. Yeah. But uh, most of the people were pretty good. It was a hard job because I was writing in the daytime, walking back home at late at night. It was across town, so I couldn't take the bus or a subway. It was freezing cold at night. If you live in Paris or London, the streets are curved and all that, so you don't Mm -hmm. get all the winds that come off the river. And in New York, they go straight geographically down, like linear. It's a linear progression. Boy, it's fucking cold at two in the morning when you're coming back. And I was making 35 bucks a day, roughly, on a good day, 40 bucks sometimes on New Year's Eve, maybe 45. You know, it wasn't big money, but it was good money for that year, 1973, too. We used to beat the cab company as we could. Yeah, we would get paid in cash sometimes, you know, we... Mm -hmm. Sure. Run it off the meter, but they had caught us. They caught me a couple of times. Taking the fare and not they, reporting yeah, it, basically? They'd have undercover cars in traffic, so you never knew if you were being, if you didn't have the meter up and you had a customer, you were in trouble. Oh, I didn't even think about you. They just were trying to match the meter. So they would look in your car and see if you had it no, up? No, they'd tell from outside. The eyes could see. Oh, wow. If you had a customer and you didn't have the flag up, they'd get you. And I got fined once or twice. But uh-huh. And of course, you have the whole professional cab drivers like the Peter Boyle character and taxi driver. You know, yeah. you have those kind of guys and you say, oh, I don't want to ever become that. You know, <laughs> I'm just doing this temporarily, right? But you get worried sometimes. Right. 
Yeah, year 10, you're thinking, is, is this still my temporary job or is this my forever job? <laughs> Listen, I thought about that a lot. You, you read those passages. I mean, I love waiters that are good. They really are important to our blood supply. It's important. But I was scared and terrified of becoming a professional waiter. Yeah. Because a lot of those guys did start as actors or opera singers or whatever, and then over time. It can be scary. And I think there's a whole lot of unmet potential, especially today, given how bad our educational system has failed everyone. I mean, that people say, like, do I have unmet potential or is this really my potential? And I thought, oh, you know, it's easy to say everyone thinks they have unmet potential, but it's kind of true. I mean, there's a lot of people that you can tell have raw material. I volunteer a lot inside prisons. And you can tell that some of those guys, if they hadn't been born into absolute squalor and then been essentially devoid of opportunity from day one, they would have been entrepreneurs, business owners, super talented singers, dancers, writers. There's so much talent locked in there. I used to feel when I was younger, I mean, I, I'm not sure about now, but that there was no choice in life. If you did not have a scientific, technical education, your choices were very limited. I always felt that the, the soft sciences were not really going to get you a job. So, yeah, you could work your way into something. You could bullshit your way into something. Mm -hmm. You could say you have a degree in social uh, working or something like that. But I always said, I really wish I had a mathematic. My father was good at mathematics. He was a broker and he really was smart. I knew what smart was. I mean, I had, I was surrounded by a lot of smart people and when I was young, but I didn't have that ability. So for me, it was writing, unfortunately. Yeah, I didn't have a voice, singing voice. I couldn't play an instrument well. So if it was writing or busts, you know, that was it. And I knew it kind of after the Vietnam thing. And I was writing for those screenplays, all those years of what, 10, 12 screenplays I must have written before I got Midnight Express. You had a bit of a tumultuous upbringing. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, it's in the book. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And a lot of this oh. is in the book. We're trying to sort of get people to get really yeah. interested and then go out yeah. and buy it. <laughs> uh, the name of it is Chasing the Light, right? And it came out a month ago or so. I had a very good upbringing, very sheltered. In New York City, up until about the age of 15, they sent me to boarding school. I think they knew something was coming, but I didn't. I thought they were happily married. I really I was very pleased with my family, and uh, they were violently divorced. They were. It was a horrible story, cheating on each other, both sides. It broke apart my world because I was the only child, so there were only three people in the family. When they divorce and the mother goes back to another place in Europe, father stays, and she was French. I was really, in a sense, on my own. I mean, my father was there, but I didn't want to live with him anymore. I was kind of depressed about it all. And I flunked out of Yale, basically. And I ended up first time in, in Vietnam as a teacher for two terms in high school. And then I went to uh, the Merchant Marine. Mm -hmm. And I traveled around Asia. I learned a lot. Wrote a book. It was not successful. It was not accepted for publication. But I had my heart in it. And then flunked out a second time and uh, went off to uh, the war which changed me for good. I mean, I came back from that experience and I was kind of disoriented and numb and alienated. And at the age of 22, I went back into film school at NYU, which was a whole different, a vocational education, but I can't say it was an education in liberal sciences, which I got later in life. <laughs> yeah. Uh, making yeah. a thing called Untold History of the United States. I really did study hard with a histor professional historians, the history of the United States. Film school one of your professors was Martin Scorsese. And what was he, like 26 years old or something like that? Yeah, he was older than us. He, he was a star student. He was the uh, celebrity, so to speak. People knew that he was going to make it because everybody's goal was to make it in the film business and make films. And he'd made a, one feature and he was about to make Mean Streets, about to. He was very energetic, very strong uh, opinion, 
saw film like a religion, you know, and he talked about it like that with great spunk and humor and excitement. And the classes were fun. He was teaching sight and sound. He was one of maybe five to 10 professors that were all good, you know. It was a very sharp place in the 60s. Uh, it was a new, f a new science, a new art form, so to speak. Nobody really had studied film. It was ridiculous. We all thought it was sort of, we're seeing movies and we're getting a degree. That's kind of, what's wrong with that? Plus, I was getting the GI Bill, which paid for most of the tuition. You weren't even drafted to go to Vietnam, right? You wanted to go, which is not the usual story that we hear. You know, here, we yeah. hear people saying, oh, I got flat feet. I couldn't go to Vietnam, even though I was drafted. Well, most of my generation, yeah. But the, the people around me in my schooling, absolutely not. Very few of them went. With that, you have to include Bill Clinton. You have to include George W. Bush and Donald Trump. All those people were my contemporaries. In fact, Bush was in my class at Yale, and uh, he went on to be a mediocre student, and he got a crazy kind of deferment through his father out of Texas, the Air National Guard, I believe, in Alabama or something, and he screwed that up, too. And they covered all that story up. And when, when Dan Rather actually revealed something about the, what happened there, he got fired. So there was a big cover-up in a way. To, Bush is, uh, was a very poor student and a poor, strange that these guys always want to go to war. You know, the guys like the other guy, the, the chicken hawks, you know, the Dick Cheney's and the George Bush's. At least you could say in Trump's favor that he hasn't actively pursued a war, but he, you know, he's close sometimes. Mm -hmm. And Clinton, of course, bombed Yugoslavia and did various things, but didn't seem to think twice about expanding NATO after the uh, the Gorbachev-Reagan uh, treaty. That was a big deal for me. Anyway, uh, I went to Vietnam because, as I tried to say in the book, partly suicidal. It was a death instinct. It was like I have no place in the world. What I was saying to you earlier about not really being educated or trained, and that the fact that my the book that I'd written, which was finally published in 1997, is A Child's Night Dream, I was a book writer, really, and I, I really wanted it to succeed. But they, when they rejected it, I felt like I was overreaching myself and that I was out of line. I had to learn the world the way the world really works. And I wanted to go to the bottom of the barrel. I didn't want to go to school, back to school. I didn't want any special treatment. I wanted to be in the Army. I wanted to be anonymous, and I wanted to be infantry. And I wanted to go to Vietnam because I didn't want to get bored to death in Germany or mm -hmm. South Korea. You know, I wanted where the action was. I was a young, active man. I had a different impression of war from the movies and, of course, from television. American society is very violent. Uh, you see it in all the media, even in the 50s. Let's not kid around. There were massacres. There were, they weren't as bloody as they are now, but there was always violence, the threat of violence. That was what made movies and uh, TV go for me. And I went there under that basis. So I didn't blame anybody, and I didn't bitch about it. I was fatalist, and I ended up serving uh, 15 months. Uh, most of them in, a, in a three combat platoons, one in an auxiliary unit in Saigon for two months, but the rest in the combat in the field, in the south, in the south, in the 25th Infantry, in the north, in the 1st Cavalry. It's amazing that you, you know, you volunteer and go there. And I heard you started to take photographs, which then led you into film. Or were you interested in film before that? And photography was a little detour. No, that was at the very end of my tour, the last three months, when I sort of knew what I was doing as a soldier. I bought a camera at the PX and I, a Pentax, as I remember, and I took pictures because it was a beautiful country, mm -hmm. amazing country. The, the rainforests, the, the sense of perspective, the green was amazing when, in the monsoon season. And of course, getting things wet was a real problem. So you can't write anything in the field. You can't keep notes. Generally speaking, it, it dries up. It gets wet. Everything gets wet as a soldier. So I put a camera in a little 
plastic bag and I hauled it around. I got some great shots. I know that when you came back, you ended up with a federal smuggling charge for marijuana. Was it just like everybody smoking grass in Vietnam? No, was no, that just no. no? No, no, it was very much of a white, a red blue thing. No, the black soldiers with me were, I mean, not all the black soldiers, but certainly I was hanging out with a bunch of heads, they called them back then. And the juicers, the, the juicers were the guys who drank booze. They were a the lot of white Southern guys. <laughs> I'm typecasting, but that's sort of true the way it broke down. Now, the black guys were really cool and they really helped me get through that war because, you know, it wasn't their war. They were cool about it and uh, fun. And the music, they had great music. They had Motown going big back then and jazz and Mongo, Santa Maria, all that kind of stuff. They were playing in the back in the hooches. They had their own hooch. We had secret hooches where we smoked. It showed it in platoon, you know, guys dancing together. There was a femininity that we missed, you know. We didn't have ladies. So it was this wonderful kind of bond that grew up between us. And shit, they didn't owe me anything. And I was, I'd never met black people before in my life. I came from New York City, privileged. So it was quite an introduction to another group of people. And I thought they were really cool, <laughs> much cooler than the white guys who most tended to be uptight. It saved my life because it kept me human, kept me human. And that's really hard to do in a situation like that where you're in a frontline unit and some of these guys are real assholes. I mean, you have no idea what a, some of those sar master sergeants in the army were like. They're lifers and they'd been around a long time and they're all looking for making an extra buck. They're all looking for promotion. They're trying to, they're cracking down on you for every bullshit rule they can get you on. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of tension and I got an article 15, stuff like that. But What's that Article 15 again? I've heard of that. That's a disciplinary action. It's short of a court-martial. What did you get an Article 15 for? You know, it was a stupid thing, like my boots were not bloused or oh. my clothes were... I was in from the field, you see. I was combat vet, and at that time, I was uh, posted in Saigon as an auxiliary MP, military police guy, guarding barracks at night, which is a tough job. And I, they didn't like the way I dressed and the way I looked and my attitude, so they bust you, you know? And I made a deal with him. I said, okay, fuck you. I'm not going to take Article 15 because it's going to lead to some time. And they're going to add that time to my time. So I went back to the field. I made a deal and said, I'll go back to the field. And you drop the charges. That kind of thing. People were making deals all the time. When I was an auxiliary policeman, I happened to be in the MP headquarters. And I saw all the posters for the guys. This is 68 now in January, February. No, February, March 68. All the guys that were wanted on the wanted list, you'd be surprised at the amount of black market shit going on, deserters, GIs who had disappeared and were living in Saigon with their girlfriends and making a bundle of cash. It was all kinds of schemes. Uh, it was kind of an interesting subculture. There was a black guy that was famous. He'd been out for two years roaming around the Saigon docks, and he made a fortune in money. And I, you see, PX was a big racket in Vietnam. They built a few of them. It was like, we built Las Vegas over there. People would go there, and they had all kinds of inside deals, especially the master sergeants. They got busted in a major scandal after the war came. It came out. They would buy cars, televisions. They'd buy anything they could from the PX, and then they'd sell them, resell them at a profit to all kinds of Vietnamese collaborators who were racketeers, essentially. Very smart, the Vietnamese. They, they saw us as a buck. You know, That's what they saw the U.S. as. They were suckers. We were the guys who were bringing a huge amount of money to the country. They didn't give a shit about what was going to happen. They were just trying to score because people were into a short time survival over there, you know, mm -hmm. very smart people. They were into these rackets. I mean, we're talking about millions of dollars were sold, millions all over the country. It was a big racket. The whole war, officers would come over there and they would go there 
basically to get promoted. They would stay in the rear. They'd be treated like kings, you know, dine on white tablecloths, the best of everything for generals in this. But a lot of them were, you know, into some kind of game. They'd get promotions. Those guys were not cheating. They were not trying to steal money because that was a bigger racket for the sergeants and the lower class people. Mm -hmm. But if you're an officer, you want to get promotions. You want to get battle. You want to get as many medals as you can. They'd phony up the reports. As the whole war was just phony body counts, phony actions. Most of the battle actions were completely exaggerated. The post-battle reports, exaggerated. We killed 152 NVA. Bullshit. You know, they killed villagers and they add, maybe they add a few NVA in there. That's what happened a lot. That's what Milai was about. Milai in March 68, 500 plus civilians killed. Not one enemy bullet was fired. I researched that and almost made a movie about it. They wouldn't let me though. They, they wouldn't finance it. Who's the they? Just the uh, they, 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 the fucking financial set. That was two thousand seven, eight, nine. That was a uh, Milai. I did a lot of work on that. Didn't work out. The Milai massacre. We'll link to that Wikipedia in the show notes for people that aren't uh, sure. Is that where that famous photo is from of the little girl walking down the road? No, 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 no. That was a bombing somewhere. Okay, a napalm bomb or something. She got burned or something. Yeah, I just remember it's a naked little girl standing in a road really upset. It's a video, actually, and I don't know if it's a photo. I don't know. I thought it was shot by uh, that wonderful Nick UTT. I think he shot that. He, I don't know if he told me that. Yeah, he I don't know. Vietnamese war photographer working for the U.S. You're listening to The Jordan Harbinger Show with our guest, Oliver Stone. We'll be right back. And now back to Oliver Stone on The Jordan Harbinger Show. You know, the appetite for drugs, not to belabor the point, I'm just kind of stuck on this, like the appetite for drugs in the United States, it seems like a lot of people get into it. You, you said that in the friendship with the African-American soldiers saved your life. I mean, it seems like a lot of people are getting into or have been into drugs since they've been invented, essentially, or discovered in order to fill like a spiritual vacuum or to sort of fulfill something that maybe you had lost before you even got to Vietnam. No, no, no. I was pretty innocent. I ain't never really smoked grass. I mean, once or twice. I did it for the first time. I did two things for the first time in Vietnam. Started smoking cigarettes, <laughs> which which stayed with me till I was about 33, and started smoking dope. And uh, I loved it. I kept going with the dope. I stopped the cigarette at 33, but I kept going with the dope. In fact, I got into, not then, but they started to get heavier. The whole scene got heavier. Cool cigarettes. Remember Cools? Yeah, with they were, a K. They were, they were gray. Yeah, with a K. Yeah. Cools were menthols, and they were like, for me, the strongest menthol there was. And you do that after a, a joint, and it would really give you a buzz. That's why Cool was very popular among the black soldiers. Very popular. I think they still are. Like, I, there's a Dave Chappelle skit where he says, why do black people smoke menthol cigarettes? And the person goes, I don't know. And he's like, that's the right answer. I don't know. Why do we, why do, we do that? It's like a oh, really? super popular thing. Well, yeah. I don't think Salem is the same thing. Or, no. But anyway, uh, what was I going to say? Yeah. But then after 69, afterward, really, heroin started to come in because heroin was around. Mm -hmm. Various versions of it, you know, opium, whatever. That started to be more of a problem in 69, 70, 71. And that was when the whole thing started to change. I mean, more mutinies, more resistance to the officers. By 71, the Pentagon issued a report that said very clearly, and you can find that report, that the situation in, Viet in Vietnam the, of the troops is demoralized and it's reaching a level at, that resembles the French mutinies of World War I late in the war. That was covered in Paths of Glory. I don't know if you ever saw that movie. Mm -mm. The mutinies of World War I, where the French uh, soldiers refused to fight sometimes. Wow. And that was the same thing that was going on in Vietnam. Richard Boyle, my co-writer 
and a friend from Salvador, he wrote Salvador with me, wrote a whole book called, I forgot the name, I'm sorry, but Richard Boyle's book. He wrote about a mutiny there. There was a lot of them, much more than you know. Also, what you don't know about Vietnam, and I try to cover it in the book, I said there were three lies in that war. Friendly fire. Friendly fire is soldiers killing, accidentally killing each other Mm -hmm. in these complicated war situations. Small firefights, big firefights. The jungle is asymmetrical. You don't know who's firing where, what, what's coming in, what's going out. I would estimate 15 to 20% of the casualties in Vietnam were from friendly fire. That's from small arms, artillery, planes, bombs. I believe my first wound, I, I was wounded twice, came from friendly fire. I write about that in the book. It's important because the Pentagon always covers that over. They don't want the parents to know their, their little boy died from friendly fire. Wow, what a waste, right? Yeah. But that happens all the time, and it's part of the ridiculousness, the lying. Second thing was the killing of civilians, which I went into. I talked about it with Milai. The third thing was the great big lie of all was that we're winning this war from the beginning. They were saying that mm-hmm. we're winning this war. It was all lies. The body counts, the assessments of enemy divisions, the CIA was doing all this. They were the leading the war. They were the leading strategists. They were making the strategy for the war, and they did a horrible job, as usual. <laughs> CIA has been involved in every war we fight, every losing war. They didn't have as much to do with World War II, which is kind of interesting. Maybe they yeah. should just stay out of it. Yeah, Mike goes smoothly. Uh, it depends. Yeah, I think the nature of, of intelligence agencies and conflicts is something that's quite interesting for me as well. Well, I'll tell you what, the Milai, I did this research in Milai, for example. True story. It was investigated by the Army itself, which is amazingly honest. Ray Pierce was a three-star general. He never thought anything happened to Milai. He thought it was all bullshit, complaining. And that's the attitude he took into it. He did the investigation. And he wrote up the whole thing. It's available. Now they've redacted some of it. but And he busted 28 indictments, 26 or 28 indictments against all the way up the Milai chain to the general of the division, Coster. He indicted Coster, who was a three-star general also. Unbelievable story. And of course, they threw out, gradually, they threw out all the 27 of the indictments and they got Callie, the lieutenant, first lieutenant, as the only guy I think ever served time. And he was pardoned quickly by Nixon. Dirty story. Yeah. The point I'm trying to make is that it's all lie. It was a big lie. And it, and don't tell me it was good intentions like Ken Burns wants to say. It's bullshit. It was a lie because that's the basic nature of man is to cover his ass. They say, this is a crazy war. So what? I'm going to make money. I'm going to survive. You know, these are the ways people think. Uh, but you got back to this whole thing started when you asked me about my drug bust. Yeah. <laughs> so just to make an innocuous story, but. The irony, you know, I come out of Vietnam and I'm completely zonked and I'm back in civilian society. I'm free. No one's telling me what to do. I don't know a soul. I'm, I wander down the coast from Fort Lewis, Washington to Oregon, California. I can't handle the States. It's just too much for me right now. So I go to, over to Mexico carrying my Vietnamese grass, which I'd smuggled back from Vietnam. So I was guilty in that sense that I brought some grass back from Vietnam. Go to Mexico, get bombed, laid, all that stuff, get crazy few days come back and is zoned out and come back at midnight, trying to cross back the border at midnight, carrying the same grass. Of course, I get stupidly busted. Federal smuggling charge, five to 20 years. Oh, my God. Yeah, serious. That's a crazy punishment. How much grass are we talking about? That's Two ounces. That's ridiculous. Maybe less. Unbelievable. Of course it is, yeah. And that was the beginning of the drug war. They didn't call it that then, but Nixon had just been elected, and he was coming into being, and he was going to call the drug war. But that prison was filled with, it was supposed to be for 2,000, it was for 5,000. Hispanics and black people mostly in that jail. I've never seen a 
these were all young people. They should have been in the military. None of them gave sure. a shit about that. You know, they were, it was a whole other culture that I saw. It was an America with a K, brutal treatment, putting these people in jail for nothing. Nonviolent crimes was the beginning of that system. That's what I was facing. They were going to, you know, wrong judge. I would have gotten five years, probably first time offense. I was a veteran, but I got out because basically I paid the public assistance lawyer. My father paid him to come and see me, which he hadn't showed up. <laughs> he didn't show up for 10 days or eight days. And finally I got my father on the phone and he said, where you been? You know, <laughs> you got out, blah, blah, two weeks ago, three weeks ago. I never heard from you. I said, I'm happy to be home. It's great, but I'm in trouble. <laughs> you know, <laughs> oh, Already. shit. What's the, yeah, exactly. I'm in jail. Oh, yeah. That's a great phone call to get from your kid after he gets back from <laughs> Vietnam, right? I imagine his face, yeah. Oh, my God. Did you ever experiment with psychedelics? Oh, yeah. yeah. Sure. Starting over there. Where did you get it over there? Was it just acid? Listen, people are smart everywhere in the world. You know that. Yeah. There's always some guys who got something. I actually did it in Australia. I'm an r and R. I did it. Australia was a big LSD place back then. There was a guru, like a Tim Leary type, who was leading the Sydney Brigade, and uh, it was wild, and ah, there was all kinds of stuff happening. I mean, it's beyond the Ken. People don't know those stories, but they're, they're very interesting. You know, like the story I tell you about being an MP and all the deserters in Saigon. Mm -hmm. It was a whole underground culture, as there is in every war. Underground culture. People living differently. Nobody conforms all the time to the demands of the army. They mock it. They go outside it. And that's the American way. Do you remember the Dirty Dozen? It's more like that. Yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah, I remember that. I, I remember that. Guys were schemers. Little. Guys yeah. were schemers. who were always doing things, trying to figure out angles. There's always a schemer in the platoon. <laughs> I heard you once put LSD in your dad's drink at a party. That's a bold move, man. Yeah. Why not? Because he needed it. <laughs> what, what do you mean? His attitude on the war was fucked. He was a Republican. He was solid. He had been in World War II. He was a lieutenant colonel. He thought the war was a good thing in this, at the beginning, and then he realized it was not what it cracked out to be. But So I was really pissed at him. I mean, we had a lot of fights about everything. And at one point, I just was fed up, and I put some a heavy dose of orange sunshine into his scotch. He loved to drink scotch at night. We were playing chess, and I put it in. Man, I really dumped it in. And he got so fucking high. I loved it. It was great to watch. He never knew it was me because I we moved on to a dinner party, and uh, he took me to. and. There was other people at the table, so he never knew what hit him. He did know something had been given to him, but he never blamed me. Or let, years later, he I think he, two years later, he said, you know, he kind of had the feeling. And he enjoyed the trip, you know, in the end of the trip. It was a sex trip for him. He enjoyed it. It broke through certain barriers he had. He had fantasies about black women. You know, he told me all about it. You know. He told you about it during the trip? No, no, later. Oh, okay, okay. I was like, that's a little more than you bargained for if your dad's tripping out. And he's like, let me sit you down and tell you Well, I wanted to change his thinking, you know, but maybe he was going in that direction. You know, like me, I had yeah. gone to Vietnam. I was talking like a black man at that point. I was smoking cools, you know. I was into my marijuana hit. That's really funny. I mean, it couldn't have been that hard to figure out. You're playing chess with one person and you suddenly start tripping on acid. No, not right away. You don't get, you don't go up right away. It takes sure. you sometimes 30 minutes. But that's the giveaway, right? I've been at this dinner party for an hour yeah. and now I'm yeah. super tripping. Yeah. Where was I an hour ago? Playing chess with my son and having a glass of whiskey. I'm not sure he made that connection because he didn't know the rules of LSD. And oh, know. yeah. Sure. No, that makes sense. Also, he'd been drinking a bit that day, too. It was sure. a Saturday. <laughs> but he was a tough guy. And it's a, there were some funny incidents. He started eating Oreo cookies. And the girls, the party started broke up into a dance. And he was watching the dance from it hanging onto a tree. <laughs> and that's where the black girl fantasy started. They were dancing through drums. 
out of the Congo, he was saying. <laughs> yeah, he was definitely, that was a good dose of acid if he saw people dancing <laughs> out of the through the jungle yeah. or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I heard you kicked your cocaine habit while writing Scarface, but that seems like a, the opposite time to kick a cocaine habit. I think a lot of people started their cocaine habit uh, after watching Scarface. Yeah, well, I guess I do things backwards. I don't know what it is. Yeah. No, I, cocaine, it was not a good drug for me, a bad drug. I started in Hollywood in the 70s. It started to get very hot. A lot of the younger people were doing it. I got sucked in and after the, basically after Midnight Express was a big hit, I sort of got into the bubble champagne. I, I I was working, but I was certainly enjoying my life, and I didn't really – I was trying to feel it out. I was meeting famous people. I was wanted, being offered deals, screenplays. It was a fantasy. God, you have everything you want. I mean, money, drugs, girls. It's everything evil. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything that can corrupt you. Yeah. And I uh, enjoyed it. I really did. I enjoyed the shit out of it. But I, I did the drug out of party instinct, and it was fun. And that's what I thought, energy thing. It was a good energy thing. I didn't take it any more seriously than that. And then after The Hand, which I wrote and directed, which is an interesting horror film. I think you should go back and see it with Michael Caine. Mm -hmm. But it didn't work out for me commercially. And I was shamed by the so-called official establishment. Like I made a horror film about a, a, a severed hand. And I allowed myself to be shamed, which I regret I regret doing because it is a better film than what they, they made it out to be. But the point was I, my second wife and I started to do cocaine, but I got addicted. And the addiction is terrible. You're not a control. You don't mm -hmm. have control over your whole system anymore. And that's the end uh, of your enjoyment as well. So it really turned into a nightmare for, I'd say, almost a year. And my writing deteriorated. I could tell I was still sentient enough to tell that my brain cells seemed to be affected. I felt that. And also I had some objective a producer I was working with told me it wasn't as good a screenplay. I wrote writing a screenplay for him. It wasn't as good as he thought it should be, blah, blah, blah. And of course, I got bailed out in the sense I could, I, I was surrounded. My friends were doing it. That's the problem with cocaine or any drug like that. You get surrounded by a milieu and it's hard to get out of it. But salvation came in the sense that I got a call to go down to Miami from a, a producer who'd worked with me before, Marty Bregman and to work on the research and to write the screenplay for Al Pacino and Scarface. And, of course, it was about drugs. That was no problem for me because I did the research stone. Yeah, I mean, I've been researching this dr exact drug for a really long time. I know yeah, a exactly. lot about it. Yeah, yeah I, I didn't boast about it. Sure, obviously. I actually took a trip to South America before that and hung out with some heavies. Down in the, really, they had great coke down there. I mean, like, you know, talking about, I forgot how strong it was. It was pure it was so pure that I would fall asleep on it, that kind of pure. Sometimes the pure stuff really knocks you out. Uh, <laughs> Did not know that. Didn't see that coming. I think yeah. you can research that one. but uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'll have to Google it. Anyway, uh, I really learned a lot, and I got into the criminal side of it, which was important, and snorting it with them was part of that. Once I had all the facts, I said, I got to get out of here. and I, gotta, I can't write this in Miami. So I mm -hmm. thought about going to France, which is where my mother was – living as well as my grandmother. It was a wonderful kind of place for me because it was winter there and it was the people were, they were not into Coke at all. And uh, I had no friends there who did it and the food was great. So it was a great chance to break the habit. And I did with my wife. And I, although I did it after that, I never really was addicted again, ever, mm -hmm. which means you need it and you can't say no. I can easily say no and walk away. 
So I don't claim to be an angel or anything, but yeah, yeah, no, of course. I mean, that's what makes the stories interesting, right? And it's also what makes like looking at someone's background like yours interesting is because we go, oh, okay, this isn't like a guy writing in a vacuum. So somebody has maybe not a giant Scarface pile of cocaine, but has certainly probably seen something like that at some point, right? I saw a lot of people get hurt. Yeah, I saw a lot of people get hurt. The saddest thing was to see some beautiful actresses who came to Hollywood with great looks, you know, You'd fall apart on cocaine. Their looks would fall off. Mm-hmm. And that was sad to see. We hear a lot about China censoring movies these days, in Hollywood censoring movies these days, actually, for either the U.S. or for China. What do you think of that? As a creator, what do you think of that? Is that just part of the game that you've got to appease the Chinese censors, the U.S. financiers, or, or what? Well, in a sense, it's always that, isn't it? You're always a game. Mm-hmm. What is currently fashionable? It's all censorship in a way. You know, I was running into problems back in 78. I mean, at the Golden Globes, I was blasting. They were throwing all these cop shows on the air. All the bad guys were colored people or, you know, they were going to jail. And the good guys were triumphant in their virtue, virtue signaling or whatever they call it. Mm-hmm. You know, and I just was sick of it back then. And I got into trouble making a speech at the Golden Globes when I won an award for Midnight Express, blasting that kind of culture. And I, they threw me off the stage because I was incoherent when I made the speech. <laughs> You know, because I was drunk and coked out. You're always fighting against fashion. I always have my life. I've always gone my way and tried to do things as, with integrity and authenticity. And it has nothing to do with what's in the air right now, whether it's this fashion, that fashion. You know, it, there's always rules and you have to figure out a way to survive that. I don't remember it being any different. The Chinese are ridiculous. They're, I've been there several times and I worked with Chinese. You're not allowed to even mention Mao, you know, Mao, Jesus Christ, and their own history, they deny them. You can't even, I had a script about the Cultural Revolution, beautiful script, couldn't make it in China, even in the 2000 period when they were a little more liberal, couldn't make it because they didn't want to know. They want to keep that away from their citizens. The Cultural Revolution is what all these generation, my generation went through mm-hmm. in the 60s in China, couldn't tell a story about it. Berlucci managed a little bit of it very effectively in uh, Last Emperor, which I love, but it's just not allowed. And then it got worse as the uh, 2010s came around. I'll tell you a story. I was a yeah. hired to do an Olympic Games commercial back in whatever it was. They had the Olympic Games in China, 2008. For my commercial idea, I wanted to do a 200 Chinese faces from the streets. That's all. It was about the Chinese face and uh, my interpretation of it. One day, the sense I had picked out the 200 people from the streets. I'd gone out and done all that. And one day the censors showed up and they asked me what I planned. And I showed them the pictures of the people that I was going to shoot. I was open about it. And they got upset because they looked at it and they said, well, we have to talk about this and think about it. They came back and they said like 80% of them were canceled because they didn't have the right Chinese face. Oh, gosh. So I said, fuck you. And I, you know, I walked away. That's typical of the, the censorship that filmmakers have to go through there. That's their custom. That's the way they are. This is a very tough society. They don't fuck around. It's a tough society. That's all I can say. And anybody can get a good film made out of it. Bravo. This is the Jordan Harbinger Show with our guest, Oliver Stone. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening and supporting the show. Your support of our advertisers keeps us going. To learn more and get links to all the great discounts you've just heard so you can check out those sponsors for yourself, visit jordanharbinger.com slash deals. And don't forget, there's a worksheet for today's episode. That link, as always, in the show notes at jordanharbinger.com slash podcast. And now for the conclusion of our discussion with Oliver Stone. 
Do you think you could make a movie like Platoon now? Do you think an American studio would touch a movie like that these days? No, no, no. not with Friendly Fire and Killing Civilians. And <sighs> No, it's impossible now. Did you read this book, 19, 2017, Matthew Alford? He's a co-writer. It's called National Security Cinema. Read it. He goes into detail on some 800 movies the Pentagon has worked on, goes into detail on it. And he goes into detail on the CIA working in Hollywood. Hmm. You have no idea of the influence, how deep they've gotten, partly because, well, the military thing is money. You know, they have big money. They can lend you enormous amount. They can give you soldiers. They can give you equipment. It saves a lot of money. It can be up to $50 million they can give you in some of these pictures. Wow. And that's important for producers. I mean, you don't have any idea of the films that were affected by this. The films I made, as well as some other people, not very many, were all outside the Pentagon. They condemned my film. They blasted it. They would never cooperate with it. Same thing with Born on the Fourth of July. Same thing with Heaven and Earth. Salvador, never, in, in no way. Because Now, these films couldn't be made. You understand? This is a very rigid society, as bad in its way as China. After 2001, when everybody was suddenly singing the patriotic song, how, you know, we've got to fight back and revenge, revenge. We're going to take on the world, all that crap, the George Bush bullshit. That was over. That's when they passed the Patriot Act. Oh, yeah. Everybody got on his tin soap opera, the horn, and started announcing what, you know, was wearing American flags everywhere. Presidents didn't used to wear American flags on there. You're too young to remember. They never, it would be ridiculous. It'd be a, a joke to wear an American flag pin. No world leader wears that. Only in this country, where you got a lot of tin horn patriotism. I never heard that term, tin horn patriotism. I guess it makes sense, though, right? Like, just sort of lip service? Is that what that means? Yes, yes, lip service. Yeah. They're the, uh, the George W. Bushes. Talk big, and then they fuck up their National Guard commitment completely. They lie, and they cheat, and they steal. That goes on a lot. This is what I'm talking about. This is what war is. Don't you think it's going on in Iraq, Afghanistan right now? Don't you think a lot of people are making money? A lot of people are cheating? It's the standard. The soldiers might be really good. The unit might be really good. But what are they achieving? You know, they're going out and killing a few uh, civilians or they're fighting some kind of monster in their head, but they rarely see the enemy. They don't even know who the enemy is half the time. I heard you set the explosives yourself on Platoon. I don't think they'd let you do that anymore either. <laughs> no, that was a special case. It was a very low-budget film. We were in the Philippines. Nobody cared. It was a B <laughs> film, considered a B film. We came out of nowhere. We were a $6 million film. You know, they used to make the exploitation films in the Philippines. It wasn't not much expected. I had no choice. We had very few limited staff. We had a good special effects crew from England, but they were overstaffed. They were complete understaffed, rather. They couldn't keep up with the amount of explosions we had to do in this movie. So I blew them because I knew where the actors were going to go. That sounds incredibly dangerous and incredibly fun. Well, the helicopters are more dangerous. And I write about that in the book. You got to get close to the blades. You got to get in the air. You got the currents. You got, you're overweight on the helicopter. And we almost went down. I described that incident. And actually, a few years, a year later, a Chuck Norris film, that's one of those same choppers went down because the maintenance is poor. They're a good army, but they just don't have money. Right, yeah. To maintain them at the level they need to be made. And one of those choppers went down and nine or 10 people were killed. Oh, man. In that film unit. It was very scary. Martin Sheen and Michael Douglas said that you were essentially willing to compromise your relationships with actors in order to make the best film. And I, I kind of compare that to interviews here on the show. You know, I see a lot of interviewers and journalists, they ask softball questions. They basically try to get their show guests to sort of be like entertaining or be friends instead of having a real conversation. And in my mind, it's about putting the audience first. And I wonder if that's how you think of your films as well. Is it about the audience 
or is it about the final result being something that you're satisfied with personally? Absolutely, you're right. I mean, there's no question. You have to work with your actor, and you have, and there's always give and take. You know, compromise. I'm not. I'm not hardline about anything, as you can see my attitude. Mm -hmm. I have a sense of humor about it, but I'm characterized often as hardline. No, you just have to get somewhere. And it's a director's job to sort of pace it, to know what's working and what's not working. And if it's not working, you got to solve it. You have no choice. You're on the spot. So how do you solve it? You don't take the hard approach. You take the let's talk approach. You try to reason this out, try to get the actor to where he needs to go. Sometimes you got to put a little stick in there to give him a little, because an actor can relax. He's in his comfort zone. Michael, especially Michael Douglas had been a television star. And I guess you get used to a certain level. Mm -hmm. And I think he himself admitted that he wasn't pushing himself. That script, uh, the gecko line, the gecko part was extremely complex with long speeches. And we put dialogue in there that was ju very juicy, but it was long. And uh, you had to learn your lines before you got to the set. You had to know them like inside your soul and he wasn't there right away so yeah i did uh, insist on that so this is wall street this is him being gordon gecko on wall street yeah on martin sheen he was very good i don't i don't remember any uh, issues with martin i enjoyed working with him very much as i did with michael eventually yeah i think they were giving you a compliment or, or maybe they they were thinking about the way that you worked with other actors i don't think it was meant as a sort of a well gig. sometimes it's misunderstood no question yeah and you know, sometimes you get killed in the press you know Sometimes an actor will go public with his complaints. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's right because we, you know, you don't, you don't snitch on each other. It's like going to school, you know? Well, yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. It seems like your goal is to get the thing done. Yeah. And it's from your book, it seems like getting a movie done is actually a lot harder than most people think. Yeah. I'm amazed at that. People always say, oh, I didn't realize it was so hard, but <laughs> I respect movies and I really admire them if they're well made. And I understand the difficulty. And I don't think people who see them don't. They think it's easier than it is, and perhaps I think that's common, and it's not up to the audience to have to go through the pain we go through. But sometimes the critics who interpret the film, you know, should know better when they tear films apart. Most of your movies, or many, I should say, are about, like, gangsters, war. Do you think we have more to learn from the dark side of human nature than maybe we have to learn from everyday people? I think we can learn a lot from the dark side, but I think it's important, too, to, to show the good side where it exists and where the hope can be. The only film I ever made that was completely black, or two films I made that were completely black and hope, without hope, were, I think, Talk Radio, which showed the darkest side of a talk show host who got killed based on the 80s, and if character Barry Ellen Berg. Another one was U-Turn, uh, which was a, a film noir, a real film noir, where everybody dies in the end. You interviewed Vladimir Putin, who's probably in my top five, <laughs> top five wish list. Okay. I mean, you took a lot of flack for that because people said you, you didn't push back on any of his assertions. I mean, I guess I understand not pushing back too hard against somebody who's known as a brutal dictator and you're in his house or in his office surrounded by Russian Secret Service. I assume it took you years to set uh, something no. like that up. No. No? Have you seen the interviews? That's important because a lot of people... Yeah. Oh, good. Have you seen all four hours? I, yeah, I think I have the first three. I don't know if I have all okay, four. Well, you should see the fourth one because that one goes to the uh, Donald Trump election and into the. And I think it's the most penetrating interview I've ever seen with Putin. I think so, yeah. Well, there aren't many, right? You just don't see that. Well, you no, know, because every American or English interview I've seen, they dub him, first of all. You know, dub, they put a voice yeah, of course. who sounds like a gangster or a thug over the guy who's talking to you and blah, blah, blah. And he sounds like, wah, 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 mean and nasty. Right. It's not Putin at all. Putin is a. 
technocrat. Is that, that's what he was. Mm -hmm. And very logical in, in what he said. Everything he said, I asked him some provocative questions. He answered it. I even asked him about, you know, when he was going to give up power because the presidential election was coming up. Sure. And I pushed him on that and I, he got upset, you know. When I see Megyn Kelly, you laugh. I mean, it's so superficial because it's it's framed as an attack to please the American audiences. Like, why did you do this? Why did you beat your wife? Why? That's the way the Americans talk to right. it. So Mike Wallace approach gets nowhere because it's only geared for American audiences to hear that the newsman has got a point to make. You don't hear about the guy he's been, he's interviewing. It's always like that. And that's what sucks about American media. It stinks. A French uh, interview would be much more balanced. In that regard, most interviews, even English, sometimes I'm all of the English are a little crazy about the Russians, but so that's a very important. I think you have to look at them. I think historically they're important. It's an important piece for historians, archivists. Anyone who looks at those four hours is going to understand the Russian position from 1999 to now when Putin was in office. It's clear what he's thinking. And America has a lot to answer for for that period, a lot. And I'm talking not as a pro Russia guy or anything like that. I'm talking about as a fair, balanced person, think about what we did in that period. This is, again, part of my life's work is what are we doing? What are we doing about our country? I've always pointed to that effect, whether it's Vietnam, Salvador, or any of our presidencies or this issue, which is very dangerous, by the way, very dangerous because we keep assuming the Russians are going to put up with being insulted and trashed. And we do it so easily and reflexively, and when you say a brutal dictator, you know what a brutal dictator to me is a guy who puts people in dungeons and tortures them and kills them. I don't see that. I don't see that. It's not that way in Russia at all. They still have a, the internet's free. You know, people can do what they want on the internet. It's just not that way you think it is. The opposition to him, it's legitimate, but it's small. People do like him. And he's been in office for what? You know, they don't have the American presidency system. They don't have a democracy like we have, but look at our democracy. It's not exactly working well. It's kind of leaking, you know? Yeah, I agree with you there. I do wonder, though, like, you've said something like, I hope to one day see an America where we live in a true democracy. Do you hope that Russia one day wakes up and there's a true democracy, or you think a different standard applies? I don't think it's the point, because they never had it. They're working on it. Mm -hmm. You know, what did they have? They had the czar. Mm -hmm. <laughs> then they had this Bolshevik communist revolution. system up until 1989. And then it was really in 89 when they started to have and what happened? The first 10 years were a disaster with Yeltsin, a disaster. He was a U.S. puppet. He was our guy. And we, okay, we're going to free up everything, privatize, privatize, privatize. But all the crooks stole everything they could. The Kodorovskis, the guy who, what's his name? The Brower. Uh, Bill Browder. Yeah. One of the worst gangsters of all. He stole everything he could. I mean, everybody looted Russia. So by 99, it was falling apart, and people hated this uh, Yeltsin regime. It was the United States propped up Yeltsin in 96. He was not going to win that election. That was their democracy, American democracy. It was a cheat. We put him in office. We stuffed him, put money into him, created a balloon candidate, and somehow he got fucking reelected. Who knows? As fraudulent as it was. So when Putin came on, he picked up the pieces, and he really did. And you have to study his record again. Take the time. Oh, I have. Don't make... I've read every book on Putin that's out there. Oh, well, every book written by a Western hack well, it depends. is going to repeat the same charges that he kills people and all Many that. Many of the books I've read are written by Russians and translated into English. Yeah, a lot of the Russians are, uh, who appeal to the West can be very, how do you say, worse than the Americans in terms of a criticism. But there's a lot of issues, and Stephen Cohn can answer every one of them for you, but I don't think you have time here to do that. 
The point is that he has done a remarkable job, a remarkable job, and that's what he's lauded for in Russia, as well as, you know, probably two-thirds of the world admires him. I hate to tell you, but I've been everywhere in the Middle East and Asia. People say he's good for Russia. So a democracy, yeah, they have a democracy. He, If he was unpopular like Cesarescu or something like Romani, Ceausescu, yeah. he would be out by now. Yeah, you don't stay in office if you fuck up. That's the Russian way. You can last, maybe, but it's not in his interest. He wants to serve. And if he feels that he's not serving, we'll see what happens. If he doesn't serve their interests, he'd be out. That's the way it works. It's a pressure system. You know, there's a lot of people around him who want the job. He's got pressure from inside as well as outside. So it's not an easy job to stay there. But I don't think he's a brutal dictator, frankly, And unless... You know, they tell me he poisons people. Yeah, well, that's what they're saying now, of course. I mean, Novichok, there's been multiple people yeah. who've been poisoned by that. Do you just think he has? that's not him? Or No, listen, I think uh, these are dirty stories, and it's each one deserves its own history. You've got to trace each one. Going back to the poisonings in, in London back then in 2000, Litvinov was his uh, name? Skripal. Litvinenko is who you're thinking of. No, yeah. that's Skripal. No, yeah. None of those hold water. When you examine, when you listen to the evidence, like the Sherlock Holmes, it just doesn't hold. It makes sense that MI5 or MI6, the British Secret Service, is much more involved in dirty hands than Russia. You know, for Russia, also the motive is not there. Why would you do this at a time when, hey, you're just about to uh, make a better deal for peace? Whenever there's a chance to make a better deal with Russia, that's when something like that happens. Whether it's coming out of Afghanistan and they come up with a bounty story, which is bullshit, which is proven to be bullshit like everything else. It's just all these stories come out at the worst possible time. And all those poisonings, too. Navalny, same kind of shit. It seems to me that it's, uh, I mean, you want to, I don't want to get into all the specifics with you, but everything I know just leads not to that. What would be their motive in doing it? He's been around for years. He's a social media presence. He doesn't have political power. Why? Why would you make that kind of mess unless you want to screw up the Russian thing and say, look, this is an election. We want to blame it on Trump. We want everybody, everything to go against Trump. We want to get him out of office, and I understand that drive. So we cannot let the Russians off the hook any more than we can let the coronavirus go away. We have to keep the country locked down and scared because it's better for our chances to get elected. I understand that. It's political, but it's very dangerous to play that game, especially with another country as an enemy. I think you've you've expressed points like this before with intelligence agencies and having an initial distrust of, or I should say implicit distrust of intelligence agencies. Is it mostly the Western intelligence agencies that you distrust, or is it intelligence agencies and covert ops in general that you distrust? <laughs> it's a tricky question, but I, I'm not an expert on Russian intelligence agencies. Although what I've told you about Vietnam alone, which should make you suspect why are the liberals all of a sudden cottoning up to the CIA? That is stunning to most people who think for themselves. <laughs> yeah. Why? When the CIA has been so badly involved throughout the 70 years that I've been alive for creating a Cold War, making it worse than it is. Of course, the CIA didn't miss completely the fact that Russia was changing under Gorbachev, right? They had no knowledge that the Russian system was changing. That's a known fact. The Iraq War, this first one too, the second one. Afghanistan, Libya, Syria. Syria. Oh, Syria. That's another mess. If when you go into any of these wars, you'll find that we've been lied to. The public has been lied to. And they've created false narratives constantly and false criteria. And on that basis, we've gone to war. This is what's crazy. Who's to blame? Not Russia to blame? Or is it us? If we asked these questions, hardball questions, if our media was honest and asked these questions, we wouldn't have been in these wars. 
and a lot of people would be alive today. We'd be a far healthier country. We'd have partnerships, partnerships with China. We'd have partnerships with Russia. We'd be dealing with a climate crisis, which is really fucking important. Mm -hmm. Instead of dividing ourselves, being distracted, not paying any attention to the biggest problem of all. This is what's so depressing about my era and depressing to be alive. And it can all be dealt with rationally, but they never do this. The media in this country has been co-opted by the state. I don't know what it is, but it's just impossible to, to be logical here. Well, on that note, I know that you have, uh, I, I want to be conscious of your time. I know, uh, you know, we've yeah, yeah. had a little bit of issues. I, I would love to hear your ideas and everything on Putin another time. Maybe when I come to Los Angeles, if you ever have a free moment to talk about this kind of thing. Yeah, sure. I am interested well, in Well, if you want to talk off the record, sure. Yeah, of course. Yeah, off the record, not on a Zoom call. <laughs> but uh, I wonder in closing, I got to close it with something other than that, right? Is there anything that you haven't been able to make Maybe because you're running into roadblocks like you did with Snowden or other types of hurdles like you would imagine you would with a movie like Platoon. Is there anything you haven't been able to do? You mentioned Milai earlier. That was a huge effort. We were two, three weeks from shooting. It fell apart. No, that's heartbreaking. You have no idea. Uh, there was the MLK, um, Martin Luther King story. I wrote two candidate version of it. I was involved in that for twice. And I was dealing with what I knew as the facts. But it's not able to be done. We're politically correct country. Uh, those two come to mind, but certainly I've had many stalls. The Snowden affair was ugly. This is an American hero, legitimate hero. He really did. He was thinking about our country. He's a patriot in the first order. I mean, of a Boy Scout, yes, but he's a patriot of a first order. And what he did is shocked us into a realization that few people have still been able to realize that we're listening in on everything. It's a new world. It's uglier than we thought. Cyber warfare, he's told us, I mean, we've figured out a lot more about cyber warfare. Of course, in our narrative, everyone is mm -hmm. fighting against us. The Chinese are hacking us. The Russians are hacking us. It goes on and on. We never talk about what we're doing. It's part of the problem. So Snowden was impossible to get done. No money from America. Got it from France. Got it from Germany. Then we got back at the very end. We got an end, a small amount from an American small company that distributed it very poorly in this country. No studio would touch it. Now, that's something. Here's an American hero, and they're scared of him. Why? What's going on? Does the NSA call up somebody in Hollywood and say, don't touch this? Well, it's something like that could happen. I know that it happened in one case at one of the studios because the guy who was running the studio was wired into the intelligence agencies. You know, that's just the nature of things. He's married to somebody who's – the boards are all interlocking. It's very hard to get things made. At MGM, when I didn't try to do Platoon, there was Henry Kissinger and uh, – Alexander Haig on the board of MGM. I'm not hiding any of this. This is known. I'll never prove that they stopped the film, but they did kill it. And it was a very sweetheart deal for them, an easy deal. But they killed it. They wouldn't touch it because it was political. I can't prove it, but I know it. Tino De Laurentiis also knew it. Listen, this is a tough game, and they play for keeps. And they've gotten very tough now for people like me. So there's other things I wouldn't even consider going to try to make. In other words, they turn you off by mm -hmm. a chilling effect, you know. Why should I try to make that, right? Right. What would you make if you had no chilling effect <laughs> whatsoever? I guess I'm disillusioned enough to say to you that I wouldn't even know anymore. Because <laughs> it's what I've said to you at this interview is important. You know, if you think about it, listen to it again, you'll see why it's suffocation is in order here. 
Oliver, thank you very much. This is really an interesting interview. I went off the rails early on, kind of on purpose, and I, I'm glad that I did because I think it was a lot of fun. What's off the rails mean to you? Uh, just like asking about personal stuff early and going into the drug thing, which oh, I about, thought maybe I yeah. would avoid, but then I was like, yeah, it's kind of interesting. Why not? And it was fun. It was an interesting- well, I, I gave you a thorough answers. Yeah. I'm too old to concern myself. I mean, I'm alive. I'm well. You can see I'm I'm not destroyed by drugs, yeah. which is what the propaganda would tell you. I'm a, not a nutcase. Long live uh, marijuana. It got me through that one. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Good luck, Jordan. I've got some thoughts on this episode, but before I get into that, I wanted to drop you a little taste of my Darren Brown interview. You may recognize him from Netflix's The Push, where he convinces everyday people to murder someone, or so they think, through this crazy escalating series of events. He's one of the most well-known illusionists of our time and mentalists, and is essentially the UK's answer to David Blaine. His mentalism skills are second to none, and he's really a master of getting inside our heads. Here's a quick bite. I was walking from one hotel to another quite late at night. It was, I was at a magic convention in Wales. I was wearing a three-piece velvet suit. Because why not? Because why not? So this guy is, you know, he's really drunk and he's uh, clearly, yeah, looking for a fight. And he is with his girlfriend and it's all his adrenaline's kind of, you know, up here and he starts shouting at me and says something like, what are you looking at or what's your problem or something. In that situation, you can't respond with, Oh, I'm not looking at anything because then you're on the back foot and they've got power. Or, yeah, I'm looking at you, what's your problem? Because either way, you're, you're going to get hit. But you can just not play that game right from the outset. So I said, the wall outside my house isn't four foot high. So his reaction to that is a, a bit of a pause. He's like, what? And I said, oh, the wall outside my house isn't four foot high. When I lived in Spain, the walls there were quite high. But here, they're tiny. I mean, they're nothing. So, <laughs> so he then... He just went, oh, fuck, and started crying. His girlfriend walked off, and he sat down by the side of the road. I sat down next to him and started asking about what had gone wrong that night. I think his girlfriend had bottled somebody. There'd been oh, some wow. fight, and weirdly, then I'm giving, giving him advice. I was talking to a friend of mine about this thing, and he, um, he's an artist, and he used to walk home from his studio late at night through a rough bit of London, and there were always these kind of like gangs on one side of the road, so he'd always cross over away from them. Of course, they'd always see that, and it's always this horrible, uncomfortable, intimidating thing. So we spoke about it, and then the next night, he crossed over the road to them and uh, said, Good evening, as he walked past them. And of course, they left him alone because he just seemed like a strange... Yeah, I don't yeah. see. He's crazy. He's just, he's just weird. Yeah. Um, Who wants to see a magic trick? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> For an inside look at the levers in our own brain alongside Darren Brown, one of the world's most legendary illusionists and mentalists, check out episode 150 of The Jordan Harbinger Show. Oliver's got stories for days. There were so many comments I saw online and in articles that were like, yeah, a guy came after him with a machete on the set of Seizure. Oh, yeah, that's the one where they ran out of money in the middle. I mean, this is just such a chaotic process. And when you're directing action movies or crazy movies like this, I mean, it just adds another layer. I mean, the guy was setting his own explosives on Platoon. I even read that, and I should have asked him about this, that he directed a porno just to pay the bills, of course. I guess I didn't realize those actually needed directing, but what do I know about the movie business? Oliver told me offline, he said, I make my films like you're gonna die if you miss the next minute. You better not go get popcorn. And he said that the Platoon release was one of the finest moments of his life. You know, I went to Vietnam myself in my 20s. I had a Vietnamese tour guide who just took great joy in telling me how Americans died horribly in tunnels and pits with bamboo growing through them and stuff. 
And he would get all detailed. And then he'd go up to me and he'd go, are you having a good time? And I just thought it was the weirdest experience. I mean, the guy was so damaged. Uh, later on, though, on the bus ride back to Saigon, he told me that the Vietnamese murdered his family, so he hates them too. And I noticed a lot of people like that. There were a lot of people that were in their 30s and 40s that just had damage and trauma from the war and the families, the country is still healing from those terrible scars. It, it's really something that you have to see firsthand, I think, and hopefully nobody here does. War is something that's so damaging and traumatizing that I think the best way to see it is not to see it at all and to, to just go and visit a country like that afterwards so we have an appreciation of it, but hopefully never have to deal with it firsthand. Oliver also told me that he's stopped reading the news. And now I don't agree with his political leanings mostly, but he did have a good point. He said, I can't exist in the tyranny of now. And I loved that comment. I, I seldom read news either other than major events such as regime changes like what's happening in Belarus right now, where they're in the process of overthrowing the dictator, which to me is super exciting. He told me that he reads deeper and wants to know the causes and effects of why things happen and not just read about the depressing stuff while it's happening. And I wholeheartedly agree with that. That's why I choose books over mass media any day. And some of you might be wondering why I didn't push back on his love for authoritarian leaders or countries like Venezuela. I think we can simply read the news, speaking of news, or even talk to a citizen of those countries to just see how those nations, those governments have utterly failed. And if you don't believe me, take a vacation to Cuba or Venezuela. I have done this. Just remember to bring your own food if you go there and have a will written before you do, because I will tell you, some of those places do not have it together. And look, I'm not shaming Cuba or Venezuela as a country. The people there were lovely, but you can't tell me that everything's fine when there's no internet or you're not allowed to look at certain websites or they run out of things like meat and coffee. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. That is communism. That is an authoritarian regime that is isolated from the world. And it's not the fault of the people. Communism simply doesn't work. I'm not sure how much I needed to belabor that point, and I thought it would ruin the discussion if we kept going down that road, so I opted to simply move on with the conversation. On that same note, he asked, why would anybody bother poisoning Alexei Navalny, the opposition leader who always runs against Vladimir Putin in Russia? Well, he has been under threat for years. He has more support than ever. There was just no reason for me to keep fighting him on this point. We don't argue that the sky's blue or that in the Bay Area this uh, month, orange. We have enough evidence and enough sources here to show that if somebody is poisoned by Novichok, which is exclusively deployed by the Soviet Union and now Russia, it's not a secret. Even Russia is kind of not giving any craps about getting caught for this. I mean, the whole world knows it. And Sergei Skripal in the United Kingdom, he was attacked and poisoned in London. A policeman was killed. The agents who did it were caught on camera. And they, when they were interviewed, they said they were on vacation looking at a church in this small town where Skripal lived. So two FSB agents come all the way from Russia on a direct flight, go to this small town just to look at a church spire and then turn around and go home? Okay, I don't think we need to spend too much time arguing this one, right? Anyway, of course I had a great time with this conversation. I'm very thankful for Oliver Stone for coming on. I just had to note that because I know we have a lot of national security people and foreign affairs people who listen to this show and just news watchers and they're gonna go, Jordan, come on, man. So I wanted to throw that note in here.
But like I said, big thank you to Oliver Stone. The book is called Chasing the Light. Links to the book and everything he does that we talked about today will be in the show notes on our website. Please use the links on our website if you buy the books or anything from the guest. It all adds up and helps support the show. Worksheets for this episode in the show notes, transcripts for this episode in the show notes. There's a video of this interview on our YouTube channel, or there will be soon, at jordanharbinger.com slash YouTube. I'm also at Jordan Harbinger on both Twitter and Instagram, or hit me on LinkedIn. I'm teaching you how to connect with great people and manage relationships using systems, using tiny habits, using software over at our six-minute networking course, which is free over at jordanharbinger.com slash course. Dig the well before you get thirsty. Once you need relationships in your life, you're probably too late to make them, so get on the horse. This show is created in association with Podcast One and my amazing team, which includes Jen Harbinger, Jay Sanderson, Robert Fogarty, Ian Baird, Millie Ocampo, Josh Ballard, and Gabe Mizrahi. Remember. We rise by lifting others. The fee for this show is that you share it with friends when you find something useful or interesting. If you know somebody who's into film, you know somebody who's into kooky conspiracy theories, maybe they'll like this episode. Hopefully, you find something great in every episode of this show, so please do share the show with those you care about. And in the meantime, do your best to apply what you hear on the show so you can live what you listen, and we'll see you next time.